There's a 14th century guide for preachers that gives the following advice for preaching an Advent sermon series. Brethren, ye shall an understunda that there ben fora lasta thingus, which wilden principle ever beholden in manis mind. Translation is, brethren, you should understand that there are four last things which should principally be held in men's mind. Four last things that would have made up the sermon themes for a 14th century English preacher's Advent series. The first thing is man's bodily death. The second is the day of doom. The third is the pains of hell. And the fourth is the joys of heaven. Four last things, four Advent Sundays. So if an unwitting medieval farmer were to show up in church on a snowy Sunday in Advent around the year 1500 or so, expecting to hear a sweet story about angels and shepherds and wise men and camels, that individual would have been sorely disappointed. I suspect that the idea for the preaching series about the four last things uh, actually came out of the idea that if I could scare you into submission... If I could terrify you with images and predictions about the wrath that is to come, I could make a good and submissive Christian out of you and save your soul from the fiery pit of hell and maybe convince you to give a little bit of money to the church along the way. I suspect that there was a little bit of that at play as well. That kind of preaching was the whole point of Advent for a good, like, seven or eight hundred years of the church's life. And we still have a couple echoes of that, of those four last things in our Advent services today. Maybe you caught, caught the collect, the, the opening prayer that Julia prayed at the beginning of the service. Oh God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness now in this mortal life so that in the last day when Christ comes in glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to a mortal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, blah, 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 blah. That is old school Advent in a nutshell. Right? We are invited to cast away the works of darkness now because judgment is coming and it's coming quick. You sure you want to stick around for this sermon series? <laughs> Just to lay all of my cards on the table, I do not intend over the next four weeks to subject you to a terrifying series of apocalyptic horror movie sermons designed to frighten you into submission and get you to pay your pledge in full and on time or whatever. We don't, we don't do fear and submission in the Episcopal Church, at least not in the traditional ways. We have other ways of doing fear and submission. <laughs> but we've moved on. We found more creative ways to, to make you terrified. There are a lot of things, actually, to talk about in the season of Advent that don't actually hinge on death and destruction and darkness and gloom. Maybe you've heard Advent sermon series like this before. You know, it's about waiting, it's about peacefulness, it's about breathing, all those kinds of things, which, which is beautiful. I do not mean to demean the traditional Advent preaching series. But this year, I found myself looking for something a little more... I don't know, gutsy, a little more dramatic. Maybe it's me. I am interested in exploring with you what it might look like to pull some of this weirder, darker, scarier, stranger, more old school stuff out of that like church attic closet where we've stuffed it behind the kitschy Christmas decorations. I mean, you know, those four last things, these leftover relics from our medieval ancestors. Maybe there's some deep wisdom in these ancient traditions of the church that our culture has lost sight of in our mad scramble to use the month of December to get ready for Christmas. I mean, you don't need one more place in the world to hear I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus on repeat, do you? I mean, maybe you do, I don't, not this year. What I'm looking for is a place where in the midst of a world of enforced gaiety, I can take a breath. 
and sit for a second, maybe in darkness, a darkness that is not illuminated by colored lights, although I am a sucker for Peacock Lane. That is a sermon for another day. Even those of us who love the kitschy trappings of a retro Christmas. I mean, I, I am the proud owner of an aluminum Christmas tree with a rotating light, right? Like, I mean, I love the kitsch. I go for the kitsch. I get into the hustle and the bustle and the fantasy. But I come to church these days looking for something a little bit different. I can get kitsch galore out there. That's not what I need when I come into this space. I mean, the holidays can be a pretty tough time for some of us, can't they? Maybe for a lot of you, if you've lost a loved one, if you're going through a divorce, if you're not sure how you're going to make the bills this month, you might, you know, prick up your ears a little bit when Jesus describes the end of the world. I mean, that is a thing that does not just happen in a blockbuster Hollywood movie thing or the book of Revelation with its four horsemen of the apocalypse. The end of the world actually happens to every one of us in ways that are sometimes dramatic and life-shaking and sometimes are mundane and a little bit silly. And sometimes we have that experience of waking up in the middle of the night in the pitch black of a cold December and thinking, where am I? I mean, how the heck did I end up here? The end of the world is a thing. It's a thing for many of us. It was a thing for Jesus in any case. He said people will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. The powers of heaven will be shaken, he says in Luke's gospel. On first glance, that sounds like more of the traditional doom and gloom stuff, right? Designed to frighten us into submission. But for Jesus, and even more significantly for his earliest followers, who are actually the ones that wrote this stuff down, the signs and the, the portents in heaven and on earth were actually not things to be afraid of. The fear and punishment side of Advent came a little bit later when medieval preachers used that imagery to scare people into good behavior. And we have some, some leftovers of that, right? You ever wonder where Santa's naughty and nice list came from, right? That Advent tradition of policing behavior runs really deep. But centuries before the church had a naughty and a nice list, the earliest Christians saw the end of the world actually as a very good thing. The end of the world was the thing that gave them hope in the midst of darkness. These were people living their lives on the very bottom of the social pyramid, right? The poor, the marginalized, backwater Jews, scruffy Gentiles living way off the map of empire who felt themselves to be experiencing a kind of intense economic exploitation. It rendered them landless. It rendered many of them starving. They were dependent on these feudal overlords for their daily bread. So the idea for these ones that a great cosmic reckoning was coming, a time when a, a righteous judge, a mighty king, would separate out the evildoers from the faithful ones, for the first Christians, that was good news. Right? Maranatha is what they sang, come, Lord Jesus. They understood the end of the world as the day of their vindication. It meant that slavery was over. It signaled for them redemption, and redemption did not mean earning a place up in heaven. It meant a, a practical and a tangible release from a life of pain and hardship. Theirs was a political redemption as much as it was a spiritualized thing about heaven and hell and naughty and nice and whether or not you get coal in your stocking on Christmas morning. Jesus says, when these things begin to take place, when you see this stuff happening, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Those are words of hope, not words of fear. When the world starts to fall apart, stand up and sing, rejoice. That's Jesus' tip 
for how to survive the apocalypse, the first tool in the toolkit of your end-of-the-world survival kit, if you like, right? We're going to be building that over the next couple weeks. And these, these first tools are actually pretty good ones, I think, for whatever kind of personal apocalypse we may find ourselves navigating in these tense days. Stand up. Raise your heads. Start paying attention. Watch to see what God is up to, because the end of the world, as Jesus understands it, is actually a sign that God is doing something incredible. And down through the ages, we experience these upheavals, not just on political and social levels, that happens. We experience this stuff in our lives, right? The, the diagnosis that changes everything, the job we lose, the spouse who walks out on us, the kids and the grandkids who start acting out in frightening and disturbing ways. We wake up one morning and discover that we no longer believe the stuff that we used to believe. The signs of the apocalypse are not just earthquakes. They're not just famines and wars. The sign of the apocalypse, nine times out of ten, is grief. It's the kind of dark grief that wells up inside of you and threatens to devour you with its terrible gnawing jaws. There is real pain in this stuff. There's pain in the apocalypse for a lot of people. And it is also true that times of great upheaval are times of creativity and flexibility and improvisation. One world ends, another world just barely beginning, a different way of being in the world becomes glimpseable, breathable, possible. Jesus suggests that our redemption as a people and as individuals, our redemption is not found in the past. It's not found in the way things used to be, in misty watercolor memories of the way we were, as Barbara Streisand sang. When the signs of change begin to mount up around us, when the darkness falls thick on our faces, Jesus says, your first watchwords are alertness. They're watchfulness. Be on guard, he says, so that your hearts are not weighed down, so that your hearts are not sunk in the mire with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, he says. Stand up, raise your heads, start paying attention. Advent is about learning to, to pay attention to what is happening in the dark, learning how to see in the dark, because it's in the darkness, it's at midnight that vindication arrives. I mean, sometimes it's the stuff that scares us that ends up being the most transformative teacher we ever knew. What I've discovered over the past few weeks is that I need somebody to teach me about the darkness again. This Christian tradition of ours does not have a lot of good stuff to say about darkness. There are odd lines in the Psalms. There's a mystical tradition that's pretty robust in terms of encountering God in darkness. But mostly what we hear is stuff like what we heard this morning, right? This old collect that we prayed at the beginning of the service. Oh God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness. I mean, we all know what that means, right? Darkness equals sin. Darkness equals fear. Darkness equals ignorance and Blindness and hardness of heart, darkness is my grief, it's my pain, it's all the stuff that I don't want in my life, the stuff I try to avoid, the stuff I've gotten really good at just whistling past. But it doesn't take a genius or a, a Jungian to tell me that the stuff I don't want to look at is the stuff I most need to see. There's an Episcopal preacher, Barbara Brown, Brown Taylor, she's preached here before, many of you know her. She suggests that we start this process of learning how to walk in the dark by taking a step outside at night. If it's cold, so much the better. She says you go outside on a night with no moon. You go fearfully at first, 
but the more and more willingly as you remember that being in the dark is actually not the same thing as being in danger, although a lot of people have tried to tell you that. There's a lot of room, she says, under the night sky. There's a lot of light, too, once your eyes adjust, so that even when you come to the very edge of everything you think you know for sure, you can still keep going if you want to, at least if you're willing to learn what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. We are groping our way through this life, most especially those of us who think we've got it all under control. I count myself in that category. I keep waiting for the, the magic key for, you know, yanking myself out of all of that, the darkness and the pain and the grief. But, you know, C.S. Lewis famously said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that for me. I mean, maybe we get too, too good sometimes at finding ways to put on a happy face and fake it. If so, I think we can take comfort, actually, in this unassailable fact that, as Barbara reminds us, there is a divine presence that transcends all of our ideas about it, all of our language for calling it to, calling it to our aid, and that divine presence is not above using darkness as a wrecking ball that brings our false gods crashing to the ground. But, she says, whether you decide to trust the witness of those who have gone before you, or whether you decide to do whatever it takes to become a witness yourself, here is the testimony of faith. Darkness is not dark to God. The night is just as bright as the day. So take a walk with me over these next few weeks. We're going to we're going to come into contact with some pretty dark stuff. We're going to hear about doomsday prophets in camel's hair and unwanted teenage pregnancies and terrible miscarriages of justice, feuds and spats among the mighty and the powerful. At the center of it all, this tiny, vulnerable refugee child whose very life is at stake. And I expect that you'll encounter some, some dark stuff in your own lives as well, pain and grief, the, the shadow side of Christmas all the more painful because of the context in which it arises. I think we can learn how to hold all of that, how to hold the hard stuff and the rejoicing. We don't have to abandon the darkness of Advent in order to fully engage in the joys of Christmas. In this tradition, we can have our cake and eat it too. We actually need both of those. This season is about balancing the rejoicing with the lamenting and discovering that they're not two different things. They're the same thing. I invite you to take a few steps with me out beyond the holiday gaiety and into a silent night sky, a world that is full of anxiety and fear, watching and waiting for deliverance. Because when these things begin to take place, Jesus says, we stand up, we raise our heads, because it's in the darkness that our redemption arrives.